having a purpose, having meaning in, in where you're heading, being able to see even the worst opportunities as an opportunity to to grow and get better and, and, and learn. And, you know, the, these are really solid individual qualities that can can help people just stay the course and persist and, and move forward despite otherwise pretty dire circumstances. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from two people, Adam Stovering and Bradley Kirkman. They are the co-authors of a fantastic book called Unbreakable, Building and Leading Resilient Teams. Forbes has said it is the number one team leadership book to read in 2023, and I can't find anything to argue with there. Adam is the director of the Wharton MBA program, and Adam teaches leadership to graduate, undergraduate, and executive audiences at Walton College. These guys wondered if resilience was merely a matter of pulling together, resilient teams was merely a matter of pulling together resilient individuals. And they find whilst that helps, that's not the answer. They have done a whole load of research and they have come up with four things that you need to have in place to build resilient teams. And one of those is interesting. One of those is psychological safety, which I've spoken to a number of authors about before, but the others are new to me and probably new to you. Interesting concepts. And we get some fantastic book recommendations and we have a really good conversation about why you would want resilient teams, some good examples, what happens when you don't. And resilience for them is really about bouncing back when challenged. So life is going to hurl a load of stuff at teams and how do they bounce back? What if somebody leaves? What if what if a project they're working on doesn't succeed? Which teams dust themselves down and come back stronger? That's what team resilience is about. So a worthy goal in building a high-performing team. Fantastic conversation with Adam and Bradley. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Brad Kirkman, the General Shelton Distinguished Professor of Leadership in the Poole College of Management at North Carolina State University. I work primarily in the areas of teamwork, leadership, and cross-cultural management, and do a variety of research projects and consulting in those areas. Fab. Thank you. Welcome. And I'm Adam Stoverink, Director of Walton MBA Programs and an Associate Professor of Management in the Sam Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas, primarily focusing also in leadership and, and teamwork in my research and writing with a special emphasis in building and leading resilient teams. And we were chatting before we were recording about 
COVID giving you a lens to view this through? But you guys have been working on resilience before the pandemic. Yeah, I'd say that the the pandemic, while a common adversity that the world shared together, it yes, it changed the way we work and the way we interact and the way we we live together as humans. But I I, I don't think that it really well, it may have changed the trajectory. I don't think it changed the 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 course that was already planned for us. It just accelerated that same course. And so w- what I like to say about the pandemic is that it was an adversity that reminded us of just how precarious our comfortable positions are in the world and in business and reminded us that, hey, we're not immune to major shakeups. So no matter how successful we think we are as a team, we need to prepare constantly for the unexpected, whether that's a a global pandemic or something smaller and more frequent, like losing a key team member or or some smaller adversity that's going to shake things up in our team dynamics. I I, I mean, losing a team member, adding a team member, adding a toxic team member from a a small team perspective, I guess. I was just thinking there about, thinking about the pandemic and and individual resilience, because I know when I spoke to clients throughout that, they were often surprised by the people who had responded well. And some of the people they expected to have done well did really badly. And so before we get into teams, what is resilience? Maybe we should start there and go, this thing, resilience, we're talking about, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So resilience is the capacity to bounce back and overcome adversity. And so you'll have resilience at all levels, whether the individual, the team, the organization, entire countries can, can vary on their level of resilience. And so at the individual level, this is this is an area that we know a lot about because scholars have been researching this topic for the past half century or more. And so we know the qualities that make an individual resilient. What we don't know a lot about, and only recently has this become a, a sort of a, a, a popular research topic, is resilience at a collective level, resilience at a team level. You know, it is is team resilience the just taking a bunch of individuals that are resilient and putting them together and does that make a, a resilient team and and what we found in our research that it, it doesn't would we rather have resilient individuals on the team than than those that aren't resilient that absolutely we sure we sure would but it's not it's it's not sufficient and and what happens at the team level when adversity strikes is very different than what happens on on an internal individual basis. And that's sort of the 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 premise and motivation behind most of our research and, and our recent book. If you'd rather have resilient people on a team to create team resilience, is it necessary to have everybody on a team to be res- individually resilient? So, I mean, is it sort of necessary to start with individuals and then it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean the team is resilient? Or can you have a resilient team if some proportion of the team are not indiv- are individually resilient? Yeah, I think it's something we've long sort of studied with this, right? Because you can look at sort of the average level of individual resilience on a team. So you can say, just measure everyone's resilience on a scale of one to 10, divide by number of people in the team. And that's your average level of resilience. Another way to look at resilience and anything else in a team is looking at diversity of certain things on a team, right? So you could say, let me look at each individual's level of resilience and see how different they are from one another in terms of that. So you'd sort of ask yourself, does everybody on the team have to have a minimum level of of, of resilience to have a resilient team? Can you have too much resilience? So all these questions I think are 
kind of still out there to be answered. I don't know that a lot of people have looked at diversity on resilience. We tend to think of it as something you want to maximize. Everybody on the team should have as much of it as they can. But there might be situations where different levels of resilience, people varying across resilience could could make a difference as well. That's that's a possibility. What are the factors that you're measuring there to give a score of individual resilience? Yes, it would be things like uh, self-confidence. How confident is the person? It would be things like self-esteem. How much do they like themselves? Social support. So do they have people in a network that can support them? Self-efficacy, which is kind of a fancy way of saying, you know, do people feel like they can accomplish what they set out to do? There's some literature showing that people who are conscientious are, are more resilient. People who are more open to experience, right? Kind of like being able to roll with the punches are more resilient. So there's probably, I would guess, about 20 different things that we've identified in the literature that predict someone's individual ability to bounce back. Is, is purpose in there on the list? I don't know that it's been examined, but I think your hypothesis is probably correct. Someone who has a, a, a sense of purpose, I might throw a sense of meaningfulness in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking, I was just thinking the two, I suppose, two famous examples are, you know, Viktor Frankl and then Admiral Stockdale, the two ones that sort of from a business context get mentioned a lot. And both of those people, I think, had that sense that they were almost that you know they certainly jim stockdale says those people who died around him died of hopelessness because they hoped to be out by christmas and they constantly got disappointed and faded away whereas he had that sense i think that this was going to be a defining event for him and i get the set the same sense from victor frankel's work that this would be the defining event in his life and that gave them some sense of meaning purpose I think that's those are great examples, and I think you're right on the money that I, some of those things matter. The example I always use in my for my groups is the race to the South Pole. Oh yeah, yeah, Scott Namanson. Yep, Scott Namanson, and you know you look at those two individuals, two two leaders, both with basically the same equipment, the same kind of expertise on their teams, same weather conditions, everything was kind of the same, and yet one, I won't say who, I don't want to ruin it, but one made it. And one did not. Another example of heroic British failure. One of many. One of many. He has a diary that he kept on the trip, and he has these famous last words. And it's like he's learned nothing. Just he just keeps saying we just you know try to stick it out. But I think it's a good case study in why one leader was able to face tremendous adversity and come out on the other side, and the other one was not. And part of it was. I think Scott was doing the trip for the wrong reasons, right? He had been basically kicked out of his battleship command position by his admiral. He was looking for some sort of personal redemption, saving his kind of reputation. When Amundsen was really just in it because the, the glory of going somewhere that he'd never, nobody had ever been before, right? He was doing it for that sense, deep sense of purpose and meaningfulness. So it's two completely different rationales. So what you said, Dominic, really makes sense to me when you talk about purpose and meaning, because I think one leader was really driven by that internally, intrinsically, and the other leader, Scott, was driven more by that. I got to get my reputation back. I've got to, I've yeah. got to save myself in the history books, you know, to be judged differently later. So I do think those two pieces come into to play as well. 
I think that a larger theme is emerging here in this conversation. Of course, you mentioned purpose and meaning and and the ability to sort of frame a negative situation as a positive opportunity. And there's a, there's a whole nother stream of, of research that is is known as the the growth mindset where if you can if you can see even the worst possible opportunity as a way to grow and get better then you're more likely to take chances and and to sort of forge ahead and leap into the unknown of course the the opposite and more common approach to adversity is something called the fixed mindset where we tend to view our our predicament as just the way it is and there's nothing we can do about it and so see having a purpose having meaning in in where you're heading being able to see even the worst opportunities as an opportunity to to grow and get better and and, and learn and you know the, these are really solid individual qualities that can can help people just stay the course and persist and and move forward despite otherwise pretty dire circumstances okay so we get some of these optimistic people with self-esteem, social networks, self-confidence. We put them in a team. And then sometimes, even if you get all of that right, the team takes a knock and doesn't recover, doesn't bounce back. Or or maybe other teams bounce back better, faster, bigger. The difference between a group of resilient individuals and a resilient team is what happens between the team members, the interconnectivity, how they respond collectively, right? If you think about resilient individuals and and the reason they're resilient, they have all these resilient qualities. They're very good at bouncing back and looking out for themselves and doing what's best to bounce up or to, you know, to end in a better situation than they started. And so that's a sort of a recipe for disaster if you don't have the team level of uh, resilience, because then what you're going to have is you're going to have a bunch of resilient individuals who, as soon as times get tough, they start to splinter and go their own separate ra- ways and put their own interests above the interests of the team. And so there's a, a whole nother level, a, a secret sauce, if you will, that requires that, that a team requires in order to overcome adversity as a, as a single unit, as opposed to, all right, everyone for themselves. And if you have a situation where a bunch of resilient individuals are looking out for themselves, then, then you're going to have a, a team that fails or, or even dissipates. And then you're essentially starting from scratch. Does Some of the teams I work with aren't really teams. So, I mean, is your inclusion criteria that the teams that you're talking about are actually teams? Things like sales teams, you know, it's not really a team. It's a bunch of individuals called a sales team that aren't a team. Yeah, I, that's a fundamental difference that has to be, you know, when I talk about this material to executives and and different clients, I start with that slide. And I define what a group is and I define what a team is. And I say, groups are not teams and teams are not groups. And if you get them confused, you're likely to do the wrong thing as a leader in trying to motivate and get those two entities to perform. So there's a couple of things that are really magical for teams. One is the members depend on each other to get their jobs done. And you probably don't want them to, right? In a sales team, which we should be probably calling sales group, every individual is out there hustling and he or she is making contacts and selling and doing their own thing. That's great. That's probably the best way to run a sales organization because they don't really depend on one another to ultimately get their jobs done. A team, again, high levels of interdependence, mutual accountability, shared goals, some sort of collective outcome that they produce at the end, like a surgical team, a highly interdependent team, 
rowing teams. I always use it, the example of rowing, crew teams, people that are rowing in these boat races. Every individual is highly dependent on the other team members. So in the case of a group, I would probably say, let's find the most resilient individuals we can find, put them in a group and let them go out and do their thing. That's all you need. If we're a highly interdependent team, I wouldn't shy away from resilient individuals, but I need to find some other qualities that the team has that's going to make it resilient. So we found four. There are four qualities or resources that contribute to a team being able to be resilient. The first one is a moderate amount of team competence. So kind of a Goldilocks approach, right? Not too little, not too much. If the team doesn't have enough confidence, it's going to fracture right when adversity strikes. No one's going to believe that they can collectively overcome it. And so they're going to be a brittle team. They're going to shatter right in the beginning of an adverse situation. So you don't want that. You don't want too much confidence because teams that are overconfident will tend not to prepare for adversity. They think, ah, we've seen this before. We'll be fine. No reason to practice. No reason to rehearse. No need, no need to prepare. We can, we can tackle anything that comes up. Well, those teams are also fracture and shatter in the face of adversity. So when we talk about confidence, we're trying to find that middle ground where it's not too little, not too much. And in the book, we tell leaders several different ways to kind of help build that team confidence to a level that's appropriate for that team to be able to succeed. One of the things we found in our, in our work is that overconfidence is contagious in teams. So if you bring a new member into the team who's super overconfident as an individual, that tends to permeate the team and create more team overconfidence. So it's actually a huh. contagious influence in the team. And so that actually is a bad thing because you're going to have teams that sort of build and feed off that overconfidence and end up being too confident. Because it shows up, that sort of, it looks like it looks like it's true until the moment it's not. They They see their results they think it's a result of their action when might not be until such time as they can no longer control their environment or something. Okay. Do you crash harder if you're at, like, if you're high, does it, do you crash harder because your sort of confidence, your overconfidence is shattered? Yeah, I think so. I think the more overconfident you are, typically the less likely you are to even envision failure happening, right? You just can't even imagine that this team is going to have any any problems at all. So when it does happen, man, are you you really caught off guard because you were so confident that this would not happen that you really aren't prepared for when it does. So yeah, the higher you are, yeah, the harder you fall. I think that's probably a good adage there. So confidence, number one, not too much, not too little. The second one that we found is critical is something called teamwork roadmaps, which is basically everyone on the team understands their own role and their job responsibilities and the tasks that are before them, but also understand everybody else's role on the team and their tasks and their responsibilities. That's what they call like a teamwork roadmap in a sense that we actually have a roadmap for how this team is going to operate when adversity strikes. And so when adversity strikes, you don't have time to stand around and wonder who's going to do what. I thought you were the one that was going to do the, you were going to cover for the Oh no, that was me. Okay, I'm sorry. You don't you don't have the luxury of being able to stand around and strategize how the team is going to tackle adversity because you're in the middle of it. So you've got to have a very very well designed 
well-formulated teamwork roadmap. The example, one of the examples we use in the book is Sully Sullenberger, who was the pilot that landed the U.S. Yeah, yeah, flight yeah. on the Hudson River back in 2009, I think it was. And he's done a bunch of interviews. They made a movie about his story. But the in, in the interviews, he said, we had no, we didn't have a specific roadmap for how to land a plane on the water. We'd never done it before. But we did have a roadmap for how to handle adversity. We knew the words to use. We knew the actions to take. And he said the five of them, he and his co-pilot and three flight attendants were able to land that plane on the water, maybe using 10 to 15 words total during the entire experience, right? They didn't need to sit around and debate and discuss and formulate a strategy, how we're going to, they just did things wordlessly because they had a roadmap in their head for what to do in an adverse situation, even if it wasn't specific to that event. Yes. And and when you, I suppose, when you look at other airline disasters that have happened, then that roadmap breaks down often as a result of hierarchy or what have you, particularly that's, that's, you know, some of the more famous ones. Yeah, you're right. There's been a couple of studies of particularly the Korean airlines where it was clear that the co-pilot knew you could tell from what he, in this case, I think it was a he, what he was saying and how he was acting, that he actually knew things that the pilot did not. But since they have the black box, they can see the recordings that that was never surfaced. They never actually, he never brought it up to the pilot. And in the Korean culture, as we know, there's a very strict hierarchy and power differences in yeah. terms of status. And so if you could break those down, the co-pilot would have been more likely to speak up and and, and say something But in that case, you're right, the hierarchy was what held them back from speaking up. Okay. I like that. That sort of, you know, we used to have a, we used to have an emergency manual, which we built because it's like shit happens at three o'clock in the morning in the rain. That's the only time shit ever happens. And we only ever had customer failures when five things broke simultaneously. And so what are you going to do when that happens? Who's on shift? Who can they ring? What can we do so that people, you know, you can move forward? We need to tell the customers, what would we do? How do we allow the team who are awake to put a plan into action? Without the plan, people would just sit around until the morning and nothing good will come of that. That's right. Researchers call it a team mental model of teamwork, which is too cumbersome. So we like to keep it simpler, but so we use teamwork roadmaps, but a team mental model of teamwork is we each have in our head that model of how we're going to approach these tasks from a team perspective. Well, right? I, and I think I'm right in remembering in the Scully Hudson River thing, the co-pilot talked to air traffic control so that there was just not as much cognitive load on the pilot so that he could just make whatever decisions he needed to make to land the plane and co-pilot does everything else. He was able to use the language that he needed to use for the plane. So he radioed back on the PA system to the flight attendants, you know, he said, brace for impact. And so just those three words allowed the flight attendants to do what they needed to do for the rest of the passengers. And in fact, everybody made it out alive. I think there was one person who got a little bit of gasoline in their eye when they were in the water. That was it. That was the only really sort of medical thing that happened in the entire experience. So it was really a miracle. But we say miracle, yes, but there was a lot of planning and the teamwork roadmaps were very, very well-designed and well-put in place. So they knew that they needed to enact that roadmap. So miracle, yes, but without the planning and, and the forethought and foresight could have been much worse. 
And, and importantly, okay. and I think that deep within that story, particularly the stories of the airline tragedies that did not make it out in positive fashion that we wouldn't call a miracle that unfortunately had casualties. Those are, I think, those stories paint a nice picture of of the third resource and that's psychological safety. And so having a roadmap is one thing. Knowing what to do is one thing. Being able to speak up and tell people what you know is a whole nother thing. And that's where psychological safety comes in. It's it's this shared belief that on this team, we can we can say things that we need to say, even if it's uncomfortable, right? And so you talk about power distances and hierarchy. Not only does that exist in a cockpit in a, an airplane, it exists in all kinds of teams, most notably in surgical teams. There is a a major difference in status between the surgeon and a nurse. And, And the nurses often see a surgeon about to make a mistake, and they know that it's a mistake, but they start to question whether they can speak up because of the lack of this sort of psychological safety, this safety to speak their mind and, and say say what they need to say. And so they'll, for a variety of reasons, will we'll think, well, uh, he's probably right. He, you know, he has his, his MD. He's, he's, uh, knows more than I do. And so I'm just going to stay quiet while the surgeon is operating on the wrong side of the patient. Right. And so, so you, you have, you have, it is knowing what to do is completely different than speaking up and saying, Hey, we're heading in the wrong direction here. And oh, so that's like, that, what's that? I was going to say, or I was going to say both the space shuttle disasters, somebody at NASA in both cases knew or thought it was likely that an incident was going to happen. And they had, they even, Pushed it up the chain. It's just the people up the chain didn't want to push it any further up. That's exactly right. And, and those cases have been analyzed and overanalyzed, and they all come to the same conclusion. And that is that those higher ups, they did not feel comfortable. People in that room that made that decision did not feel comfortable saying, no, this is ridiculous. We should not launch, even though some people in the room did know. The others that were sort of the highest up sort of shut those voices down. They they did hint at a possibility, but they said the, the possibility is too low or I don't think that's going to happen, right? And they felt all these external pressures were already over budget, were over time. The whole world is watching. The news are already lined up outside. We have to launch, right? And so all of these pressures contribute to this need to sort of conform to whatever the external stakeholders are pushing us to do instead of having a hard conversation and say, despite all these pressures, we can't launch. We got to figure this thing out. And so there was not enough psychological safety for the people that really knew what was going to happen uh, to make a strong enough case. They said it once and thought, okay, that's enough. If they don't believe me, they don't believe me. Some just excruciating interviews of the people in those rooms. I'm thinking about the Challenger, for example, back in the 80s. The person that actually sent the facts, of course, everything was faxed at that time. The person that sent the facts with the launch orders, he was interviewed just actually just a few years ago. And he said, I I wish I had the courage to say, no, I'm not doing it. Because he knew in, in, in his, you know, deep in his in his heart that what he was doing was sending facts that had a very high likelihood of leading to people's deaths. But he did it anyway, 
even though he knew. And so that was that's a, a, a sort of a, a, a tragic example of what can happen if the team doesn't feel safe to stand up, speak their mind and, and take a stand. The guy who did the uh, electrocute the Milken, Milgram, that's it, Milgram. And, you know, just a bloke in a white coat. And just turn the dial up, you know, keep going, keep going. And, or, you know, even the, how long are the students in the, in the room, you know, one line is, everybody else is, everybody else is an actor except one person, you know, one line's longer than the other and people just, people conform. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, there are loads of examples where people find it incredibly difficult to say what they believe to be true, just you know, stops them. So you've got to go and be really, really deliberate around psychological safety. I talk a lot with clients around psychological safety, mainly from, I suppose, from a perspective of team dynamics, from the Project Aristotle, from Google's research, but also thinking about innovation. But I hadn't thought about it from the, it never occurred to me that the same thing is true for resilience. That's fascinating. Yeah, we, we actually have a, a study that was recently accepted at the Journal of Management on this exact concept of team conformity. Our sample was an interesting one. It was teams of officials at NCAA football games here in the U.S. And what we found was that, you know, that external pressure that that they feel from crowd noise, right? Particularly in, in home field bias is a, is a real thing, right? I mean, there are plenty of data that will 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 demonstrate that officials call in favor of the home team more than they call in favor of the the visitor team there's a significant difference between between those groups and so what we found we were trying to figure out well how can we how can we diminish this this conformity right conforming to what the crowd wants here at this home stadium and what we found is that the the more familiar the the officials are with one another meaning the more they've worked together they're able to sort of I guess that sort of serves as a buffer to protect them against that external conformity. We as humans, we need, so we have this sort of need to belong and need to make people happy. And so we, that's the reason why we sort of acquiesce to what people outside the team want. But if we can get that within the team, if we're so, if we're connected enough as a, as a unit and, and we can satisfy that need to belong internally, then we're able to sort of ignore what's happening outside of the team. And so uh, a lot of times there's just a, a lack of social connectedness within a team. And, and when you have that, then you're opening up the door for a lot of different adversities to creep in and, and, and really sort of tear the team apart. Okay. What was the fourth thing you found? Fourth one is a capacity to improvise. And, and, you know, this one I think makes a lot of intuitive sense. When, when adversity strikes, you need to be flexible. You need to be adaptable. And so you need to be able to improvise. And, and improvisation is really taking your existing knowledge and experience and then recrafting it into something novel that better suits this situation, right? Because most situations, most adverse situations that we face are, are not comfortable situations. We're not used to them. They're usually something new that has happened to us. But it, when, when responding to adversity, it, it, I think it's important to understand how the human brain reacts. And our human, the human brain, when we get uncomfortable, it naturally tries to gravitate towards the comfortable. And so our brain will try to get us to respond to adversity in ways that we've always done before. The, you know, the, the, the tried and true methods, the, the habits, the rituals, the routines that have always worked for us in the past. But the problem is that most adversities are not like anything we've experienced in the past. That's why they're challenging. And so we're hardwired to sort of respond 
in exactly the opposite way that we should. Instead of instead of trying to be creative and, and adapt to something new, our brain's telling us, no, 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 let's go back to this, this comfortable response that we always do in, in these situations. It's worked in the past, so it's got to work this time. But most of the time, that's not the case. And so being able to be creative and, and adaptable in that moment and choose a new course is really important for, for teams to be resilient. Does that decision get made by an individual or by a team? Well, often, oftentimes it's an, the leader plays a sort of an outsized impact on this. And so that's a really good question because if the leader has trouble with adapt, if you don't have an adaptable leader and the leader is very much sort of closed minded and really gravitating to or to his or her uh, typical responses, then you're off to a, a bad start, right? The leader will say, no, we need to do this. This has worked in the past. And because of their outsized influence, particularly if you don't have psychological safety, then you have a, a team of people that are just going to nod their head and say, all right, let's do it. Uh, but with psychological safety combined with this capacity to improvise, then now you have a team that are willing to stand up and say, even to the leader, hey, I, I know this has worked in the past, but these are three reasons why this is not like the past. And, and I think we need to get together and brainstorm and come up with a, a novel solution. I think if you put all, I've just, I was just looking at the list that I've got here and I was just thinking, so some rigidity from leadership, a lack of psychological safety, no plan for what to do when it goes, when something, when the shit hits the fan and maybe overconfidence there. And you just, you've just got people going, running around like headless chickens. And even if it's obvious that the solution they're about to implement has no connection with reality, they just do it anyway. Because that's what they've trained themselves to do that. Well, and, th and that goes back to, Dominic, your excellent reference to the Milgram studies, that people are just naturally obedient. And so if some random person in a white coat tells me to, to shock somebody until he goes unconscious, I'm going to do it, according to the research. Uh, of course, I'm not because I know the research, but the average person would. We know that. I, do you know what? I suspect, though, you'd feel, you'd still feel like you should. What's interesting about that study, Dominic, and most people I think don't know, is that about two out of every three participants actually not only shocked the other person in the study, but they they shocked all the way to the end. And 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 to be clear, the end was after the person stopped responding. And so they're shocking an unconscious individual in the next room, e even though they know in advance it, it was such a dramatic scene. They even told the participant that this person has heart problems and yet they still shocked him all the way to the end they're basically shocking an unconscious individual because some random guy in a white coat told him to and the only thing the guy in the white coat said when the person objected like i really don't want to do this the person said you have no choice you must go on well and, of and course you have a choice what do you mean i don't have a choice i do have, of course i have a choice but those words you have no choice you must go on and, and they did and so the and they actually have videos, re recordings of, of these exact people in that moment. And some of them were sort of, you could, they're voicing their conscious. And, and one of them even did say, well, I sure do have a choice. I could, I could just walk out right now about 10 seconds before he shocked him. <laughs> Higher resilient individuals is sort of your baseline. I like that. How do you... Psychological safety, I can get my head around. The, com the confidence thing, I can get my head around. The having a plan, you know, what type of failure could we... One of the exercises I do with clients often is, often we call it sort of O-ring exercise with a nod to NASA failure or pre-mortem. Because often we're trying to get people to, in the room, who are sitting there, 
isn't this plan amazing? We're going to 10x the business in two years. And everybody's nodding as the CEO does another slide shuffle. And it's like, okay, what could go wrong? Sometimes I say to people, and what is it you're thinking that's going to get you fired? But I need you to say it anyway. And a bit like a bit like saying, shock them, you have no choice. People, people put their hands up and then say, say this thing that they were thinking, God, if I say that out loud, I'm going to get fired. And just because I ask them, then they, tell, they say it out loud. But the capacity to improvise, how do you train a team to have more capacity to improvise? So there are consultants who go into companies, uh, oftentimes they'll be theater coaches, acting coaches, that will use improvisational acting skills. And they'll come in and work with teams and bring those principles from the theater into an organization. And there's a variety of different tactics. And also there's been some research on that as well to show that that's a learned skill. Because people say, well, I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at improv. I can't improv. This sort of that growth versus fixed mindset. They just automatically assume that because they're not a stand-up comedian, they're not going to be able to improv. And, and it's actually a set of learned skills that you can build up over time. So having acting coaches come in and help people understand bringing these theater principles into the workplace can make a dramatic difference. And there are a couple of other factors that directly contribute to improvisation in a team. And, and those are the team's creativity and the team's sort of what we call transactive memory or really the, the diversity within the team. And so starting with creativity, there are a lot of different processes that teams can learn. You know, what, my favorite is design thinking. And it's, a, uh -huh. it's an incredibly powerful framework for sort of retraining the way that, uh, that teams think about and, and approach problems by putting the end user at the center of everything. All right, let's start here, be empathetic, find out what their struggle is, and then work backward to create a solution. So powerful. I do quite a few workshops on teaching design thinking and teach it in, in my courses to every one of our MBA students. It's just, it's such a universal skill to help problem solve and to innovate and ultimately to improvise. The second part of that is that sort of diversity of thought. We want people who are thinking different, people with different backgrounds, people with different ideas and perspectives and worldviews and beliefs. And we want those people to come to the table. And, and again, this is where psychological safety comes in. It's not, it's, it's, it's one thing to have diversity within the team and everyone sort of have unique thoughts and different ways to approach problems. But the other, the, the most important side is that they feel comfortable bringing that diversity to the table. And, and you know, and, and when, when times get tough, when adversity strikes, you want as much information on that table as possible and as quickly as possible so that you can make an informed decision. If you have just one person, either on, on one side, you don't have any diversity on the team. So everybody's just thinking the same or one person says something and everyone just nods their head. That That's not a team, right? That's just you don't need you don't need to waste everyone else's time. You can just have one person just make the decision. And so when, when adversity strikes, you want that diversity of thought, but you also have to have that psychological safety to sort of bring that to the to the table, all those unique thoughts. And so we can sort of talk about pros and cons of, of each. And so you can start to see how each of these four pillars or resources of, of team resilience, they're not independent of one another. They, they interact with one another. You need really all four of them for resilience to emerge. And that, that last piece, Adam, about diversity of thought is really critical for a resilient team. And one of the things that tends to battle against that is we, we tend as human beings to want to hire people that think like us, look like us, sound like us, walk like we do. I mean, there's a tendency to the similar to me phenomenon, some of those things that are existing. 
And we really have to battle against that, right? We we, we do that because it's a self-esteem enhancing motivation, right? Oh, look, they're just like me. This is awesome. This is going to be great. And you need to battle against that. You need to hire people and bring people into the team that are not like you, that don't think like you do. And that's threatening sometimes because again, it sort of can be a self-esteem threatening motivation, but that's the goal is to bring people into a team that are quite different from you and the fellow team members to get that diversity of thought, to get the resilience processes working highly effective. It's interesting. I, I remember reading some sort of work that people had done looking at the type, looking at Myers-Briggs type indicator and, you know, almost all bank managers in the Republic of Ireland were the same type and almost all female lab technicians were the same. Now, I don't know whether that fits your definition of diversity or not, but certainly there's a, all of those, you know, and so the, the, the researcher postulated is it that this job attracted this type of people or because everybody was already in there like that? If you weren't like that, you couldn't stick it because everybody was not like you. So you would leave, you know, it's like, I don't know which chicken and egg maybe. Probably a little bit of both, but I think personality certainly fits the definition of diversity, right? Because you know, we'd say, you know, I'm an extrovert, so I'm attracted to other extroverts and that's, you know, people that are quiet freak me out. So I don't really want to, I can't read them. I can't figure out what they're thinking. So that makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to, you know, hire an extrovert instead. So yeah, certainly personality would fit that whole under the umbrella of diversity, right? We know, we know from research that's been done on personality in teams, like one of the bigger findings is you want some extroverts and some introverts in most teams, right? If it's all extroverts, all we do is sit around and talk. We don't get anything done. If it's all introverts, no one says anything. And so we can't get anything done. So you know, a healthy balance of extroversion and introversion. So yeah, you're, you're, you're right on the money with that. And the research would back you up as well. Yeah. Fab. Look, what is it, Adam, what is it, you know, now you wish you'd known earlier? A good question. I would say that there is a very powerful mechanism to enhancing not only psychological safety, but team resilience that nobody's really talking about. And it's this concept of vulnerability. And if you if I were to be able to inject any one thing into a team, it would be people getting the team members to feel comfortable being being vulnerable with one another. We have some fascinating research on the power of vulnerability to enhance the resilience of a team, right? And, and by vulnerability, I'm talking about taking interpersonal risks, such as admitting mistakes and weaknesses, talking about personal struggles, essentially showing your teammates that you're human. The most important person to do this on a team is the leader, because the leader is going to sort of set the stage. And so if I could sort of inject one thing into a team, it would be vulnerability, because a lot of people are, you know, they look at this vulnerable as sort of a, a, a soft, touchy-feely, pushover weakness. And in reality, it's actually a sign of courage, right? To be able to stand up and say, you know what, I messed up. It, as a leader, that really sends powerful signals throughout the team. It's interesting. My best example of that, and I'm sure you have loads of others, but is the RAF display team, the Red Arrows. You know, whether they're doing a display or not a display, the first thing they do is land, still in their jumpsuits, grab a cup of tea. The leader stands up and he goes, gets the video on. This I didn't do this very well. Has anybody else got any feedback for me? Right? And then they all chip in. And it's that sort of deliberate ritual seeking feedback builds that psychological safety, but that's vulnerability from the front saying, look, here's where I messed up before you look at other people. 
That's spot on because, and one of the things that I, I teach my students and my corporate clients is the power of a leader to stand up and and essentially play devil's advocate on themselves, right? I have this idea, you know, it's not super vetted. I'm sure there's lots of things wrong with it. For example, here are two things that I already can, can figure out that are wrong with my idea. What else do you have, right? So what you're doing is you're showing them it's okay not only to challenge one another, but it's especially okay for you to challenge me as a leader. And, and you know, one of my my favorite lines that 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 I always encourage uh, my leaders to ask it's a question that I always encourage my leaders to ask their teams is what do you think, right? And and it, it it's a pointed question, but it says that I don't know everything, and I need your input for this idea to to take shape. Fab. Bradley, what have you got? What do you know now you wish you'd known earlier? I'm going to go deep. I'm going back to childhood. I grew up an only child and I wasn't really a joiner. I didn't really, I wasn't in the Boy Scouts. I didn't do church groups. I played team sports a little bit, but not that much. So when I got into my PhD program and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study, I sort of found this team thing. And I think I wanted to study teams because I didn't understand them. Like, why would anybody want their performance to be dependent on other people? That makes no, as long as <laughs> no sense to me whatsoever. I don't get it. Don't understand it. And as I got into it and started really, really getting deep into it and really making kind of the study of teams, my, my career and seeing all the incredible examples of the power of teamwork and what it means to be a part of something and what it means to be, to see something come to fruition collectively and the type of meaning and, and power you can draw from that. I wish someone had told me that when I was seven, eight, nine, 10 years old, it mean, get out there and get in some groups, get in some teams. You're going to, you're going to find it really beneficial for you. And you're going to see the power of it. So COVID kind of brought it full circle for me, because if there's anything we learned during that, that period is we really, we do need each other. I and mean, we can't, we, we can't do COVID alone. It's just not going to happen. We can't do these big, massive world events and things that are happening to us on our own. We, we need people. We need to be together. We've seen what's happened with the mental health of our children around the world as a result of those couple of years of isolation. We cannot do this by ourselves. And so being a part of a collective, being part of a team is a great thing that I've kind of learned along the way. And it's sort of culminated in this notion of, you know, collective resilience is where it's at. The ability to bounce back together as opposed to being on your own is really all we have as a society I, in terms of the world too. I think that's fascinating. That it never occurred to me that there were people who had never been in teams because then you've only got your own joy. Like, because you can mirror joy in others and you get the same chemical, I suppose you get the same with sadness, but you know, you, you get to magnify your own emotion by sharing the emotions of the people around you. And it's never thought about that, that what an amazing thing to then find out what you'd been missing out on. <laughs> And it's probably also my generation because my generation was the generation X, which is like uh, 70s, right? So it's like, go go play somewhere. You know, go, go, here's your bike. There's your, you know, I'll see you later. Now kids today have 50 different activities and they're going to ballet and they're going to baseball and they're going to, I mean, it's all sort of orchestrated for them in groups and teams. So it's almost like built in to the later generations. But back when I was coming up, it was like, you know, you're on your own, kid. Have a good time. We'll see I, you at dinner. I look, I remember having this conversation with one of the parents at Sports Day last year. And I said to her, I, my parents didn't come to Sports Day. She said, that's because we grew up in the 70s when parenting was just benign neglect. You send them to school, other people brought them up for you. 
<laughs> That's so true. That's exactly how it was. So, you know, I think people in my generation found a way to be a part of things, right? They they did yeah. that, but it wasn't structured as it is now. It's really yeah. kind of built into the whole growing up process. You're going to be a member of this group. You're going to be in this team. You're going to play this sport. I mean, it's just all kind of mapped out for you. So I do think that there's a generational piece here as well. Other than your fabulous and breakable building and leading resilient teams available from all good booksellers. Is it on Audible yet? It is. It is. I think when I, la- I, think when I got, got my copy, it wasn't, which is why I have a hard copy. Ah, oh, no, it's being narrated by Morgan Freeman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the guy's name is Ian Putnam, and he's very, very good, actually, but he's done a variety of books you'd probably know. And so we were able to connect with him, and he was able Fab. to do the audio book for it. Yeah, it came out a little bit later than the actual book, right, Adam? It was a Maybe a month or two delayed, yep. maybe. Okay, yeah, there was there was a delay. So Dominic, when you purchased yours, it probably was not available. I'll, on... I'll go back and get it. It's a different experience. It's like going to the cinema and reading a book. It's all different. So what books do you think people should pick up and read? Now, it could be about this topic that we've been talking about, or it could be you just read this amazing novel on your holidays. I don't mind, but what have you got for us? A couple that actually are relevant to our work, which is probably why I like them so much. One is Grit by Angela Duckworth. And the other one is Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. Both are packed full of research and and also practical advice on living a better life and and working together with with, with others in a team. Fab, Bradley? Yeah, you stole one of mine, but that's okay because now we have some kind of agreement on on a book. I think the Fearless Organization, you know, Amy Edmondson was really the person that she's at Harvard that came up with psychological safety and how she felt like it was different from trust. And so she's done a phenomenal job of really advancing that that concept to where it's now almost like an everyday language. We use it all, all day, every day in organizations. The other book that we kind of use as a, as a model for the Unbreakable book, not in content, but in style, is a book called Switch by Dan Heath. Oh, yeah. um, I think the subtitle might be How to Change When Change is Hard, but it's really a, an, a like our book. It's a story driven. It relies on research, but you know you don't you don't you're not reading the research, but you know it's embedded in there. So you know we can. Uh-huh. You're reading our book. You can say there's a lot of evidence behind what they're talking about, but just kind of that style of telling a story and getting your points across in a very example driven kind of way. I think Switch is a phenomenal book. Adam and I both teach modules on organizational change, and we have a phenomenal simulation that we use called Experience Change. And I oftentimes recommend people kind of do the simulation and have the book switch with them as well to get kind of a nice takeaway for, for org change because we know change is difficult for people as well. And, and change and resilience kind of go to hand in hand, right? When you're facing tremendous amounts of change, you need that resilience to be able to, to navigate through those waters. Okay, that's fab. Gents, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. It's been fabulous. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.